0: Welcome to Mysterious Universe Plus, Season 23, Episode 17. Coming up on this show, we've got the Terminator spheres of Sasavo, breeding stock for the Mami Wata, and meeting Pleiadians at the vegan health food store. I'm Benjamin Grundy, joining me is Aaron Wright. Oh, it's not a crystal shop? No. One of the other places that you would meet them. Very few locations I'd expect to see a Pleiadian. It's a vegan health food store. You know the one where you go and when the staff points up to show you what's on the menu, you can see all their armpit hair? (laughs) It's like the one that we occasionally go to.
1: And the only deodorant they sell are those (laughs) stupid crystal rock things? Yeah. Yeah, right. That makes sense. They
0: sell this curry there that we've got twice. And each time it feels like you've just eaten magma. No, lava. Lava, but lava coated in armpit hair. That's literally
1: how it tastes and smells. Not that I know what armpit (laughs) hair tastes like. It's what I assume it would taste like.
0: (laughs) And everyone that works there has some side gig as a crystal healer or something. (laughs) And they leave all their pamphlets on the counter. So when you're buying your vegan food, you can see their other businesses. Did you see the dog dowser one day? No, but that, there's a couple of dog psychics that advertise in the cafe in my house. Oh, is there really? There's not one. There's two of them. They're competing against each other, <laughs> trying to lower their prices.
1: Well, this dog dowsing thing, I was like, what the hell is dog dowsing? It's to use dowsing to train your puppy where it should pee. Oh, so that's you, a good idea. You take these dousing rod, well, they come to your house and they go out with dowsing rods and they check your
0: property to find where you should encourage your dog to pee. Why is there a place that your dog should is there like an ideal, ideal feng shui location yeah, for your weird dog to pee.
1: dousing location that if your dog you want to toilet train them you just send them outside. I mean I should probably use that with kids it's probably more effective. Couldn't it
0: just be outside in general? That's what I would have thought as well. But if you want to pay 80 bucks
1: an hour to get a dog
0: dowser in, I mean, that is keeping the economy going somehow. So that's my story. I've got uh, Pleiadians in in vegan stores. What have you got coming up?
1: Well, after we did that huge show on giants, I started looking into some more literature to see if I could find any stories that kind of relate to that stuff um, that was different enough to do it on this show. And the only thing that I found, which led me down this different path, is it actually relates to the Tunguska explosion, You know, that massive explosion that happened back in nineteen. still hotly debated as to what caused it and it flattened you know, hundreds of hectares worth of land and just caused so much devastation, killed thousands of reindeer, killed off the, the nomadic tribes that were in the area. And there's all these stories out there about it being, uh, it's, it's a little bit controversial, but a UFO came in to stop the meteorite that was going to crash. And you know people saw they the They did UFO. a good job of it. Well, it turns <laughs> out that there's all these legends and there's a Russian researcher that's looked into the legends of the area. And this is Great, I think. When you start looking into the legends of a region, you start to understand, you know, what potentially could be taking place around major events that that occur. And the Tunguska explosion apparently happens roughly every six to seven hundred years. It's strange, Gosh. right? And it relates to a legend of a fire giant. And that's how I ended up finding this. So oh. there's all these legends of there being a fire giant that inhabits this location, and every six to seven hundred years, and apparently analysis of the soil has shown that there's changes in the electromagnetic um, properties of the soil at layers of intervals of around six to seven hundred years. So something very strange is going on. It's being reported, or it's being recorded in history through these legends, these folkloric tales, but this Russian researcher has a different perspective on it. He thinks that there is some advanced civilization that has built a defensive system. Oh, does this link to the the stone towers? The the iron towers and the uh, the spheres that are in this location. And we've discussed it a long time ago about there being this idea that there are these spheres that are being uh, firing something up into the sky to act as a, a defensive mechanism against incoming meteorites. Well this particular Russian researcher has just gone a little bit further and he's found cases of teleportation and uh, odd occurrences of what he calls the Terminators that hang around, <laughs> and a mistake. Well, at least he's got some
0: original. Oh, absolutely,
1: yes. But they're mistaken for UFOs. But they're linked to these electromagnetic weapons, alleged electromagnetic weapons that are being fired from these spheres, these strange spheres that are hidden in the Siberian tiger. So we're going to get into that a little
0: bit later on the show. Is there a, a character named um, Igor Connor <laughs> who saves the human race? <laughs> I couldn't no, think of a, a Russian name it's Nikolai that to Johnny, Nikolai yeah.
1: <laughs> No, 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 nothing like that, but okay. uh, all will be revealed.
0: Looking, like. looking forward to that. Well, I picked up this new book from Paul Anthony Wallace, The Scars of Eden, and he's an he's not Australian, but he lives in Australia. He's an Australian author, uh married an Australian woman with uh heritage from Ghana. And he wrote a previous book which is still on this theme. It was called Escaping from Eden does Genesis teach that the human race was created by God or engineered by ETs? Hmm? Which one? I, I would have thought that it was God, but I could be wrong. Well, since we've been covering so much of this stuff lately, uh, you know, we've been talking about uh, Genesis being some kind of code for aliens inter- interrupting the human evolution and and we've been covering a lot of that stuff recently, I was ready to just put this book on the shelf because I knew, obviously, that's what he was going to be writing about considering that the first book was all about Genesis and the idea of engineering ETs. But like with many of these authors, and this is something that's come up a lot this year, is there's a personal story. There's a personal story to it always, and that's what kind of ropes me in. So before I, I stacked this away and thought, I'll come back to this in a couple of months, I just quickly read the introduction And in the introduction, he goes back to England, where he's from, to the city of Bath. It's 1985, and he's wide awake at 2 a.m. And he says he doesn't understand why his curtains are closed, but his entire bedroom is bathed in this strange glowing light. Now, he explains he lives on this top floor apartment uh, on the outskirts of Bath, and he lives on his own in this apartment. And uh, he's, again, he's in his 20s, so he feels like he's indestructible. He's, yeah. His usual, his usual time of getting home is about uh, 1 a.m. He likes to, to go out late at night and, and party and come back at 1.30. No, he's a lightweight coming back at 1 a.m. Well, he, he retires at 2 a.m. That's kind of his routine. And he says, being out and on my own in the middle of the night doesn't worry me in the least. Why would I? Again, I'm 20. I'm indestructible. But he says he generally leaves his curtains open to let the fresh air in. And there's a street light that's, you know, always on outside of his window that makes the room, you know, filled with this nice soft light. But he says tonight, instead of that soft light, there's this warm orange glow in the room and something's moving. And he says, I don't understand what I'm looking at. He says, I can see five things just beyond the end of my double bed. They're standing side by side between the foot of my bed and the window. He says the figures are short, gray, almost translucent, and moving just enough to show me that they are alive, but they are not human. And he knows that he won't be able to scream. Like he knows it's like a dream where you try and yell out and nothing comes out. But he manages to hiss at them in a whisper and says, in the name of Jesus, get out. Now, again, he's 20 years old, but he pulls the bed covers up over his head like a child and is shaking like a leaf. And he says, suddenly, I'm not indestructible. I'm terrified. Okay, so there's a personal story in here. Again, that's what gets me into a lot of these books. There's some kind of personal narrative to unravel. And this continues because he explains that despite having this wild experience in his 20s, and he doesn't quite explain... What happened after that? He just leaves it hanging for you to discover. But we learned that when he came to Australia, he mustn't have shifted from his uh, pretty staunch Christian beliefs because he was an archdeacon when he came to Australia for the um, the Anglican Church. Right. And I think he still is. I'm not sure if he's shifted from that position. But, but surely his perception must have changed a little bit having these experiences. Oh, very much so, because he's now, as we've seen from his first book, Escaping from Eden, he, even from the title... He's questioning if Genesis is teaching some kind of ET engineering with the human, the human race, genetic engineering. Now, it gets interesting because, he, again, he talks about his wife being from Ghana and uh, his wife's parents, they're devout Christians as well. Their spiritual tradition is, is Baptist and Pentecostal. And one, one afternoon, his in-laws were visiting their place in Canberra and they sat down together after this Sunday feast and they wanted to know what he was working on for his books. This must have been before his, his previous book, Escaping from Eden. And he thought, this is not going to go down well. Like he basically sat down and explained to them that uh, I think Genesis is actually talking about extraterrestrials interfering with human evolution. And then he sat back, waiting for them to disown him and and take their daughter back, and you know, just f- for it to be an absolute disaster. But they basically sat and listened and listened very politely. And when he was finished laying out his grand scheme, they basically they basically said, "Paul, uh, we already know this story." What they said, people in Ghana already know about this. Our story goes back for generations, and we actually know people who had what you're describing happened to them.
1: So has he subconsciously come to this conclusion because of influences and
0: discussions with his wife or has he just come on to this by himself? He doesn't even know what they're talking about. He's never heard any of this. Right. And they start telling him about this, this woman from uh, Ghana in, in October of 1984. Her name is uh, Akua. And she's dazed and anxious. She's walking along the beach of Anloga. She's she's a young woman. She's 26 and she's completely out of it. And she starts to get her bearings and suddenly realizes and starts to recognize where she is. And she slowly makes her way back to her family home, which is just a few blocks away from where she's kind of come to. Now, when she walks through the door, her family can't believe it. They are absolutely stunned. There's, there's tears and joy and, and confusion. They gather around her and, and hug her tightly. They can't believe that Akua is here. Now, the reason they're so bamboozled is because Akua's been missing for three years. Now, as they scurry around to, to make her comfortable, they help her settle in. And of course, you know, they're so glad to have her back, but eventually they have to start asking questions like, where have you been? What happened to you? Where did you go? You've been gone for so long. Why didn't you contact us? Now, gradually, she revealed her story. She was taken from the beach in 1981. She was abducted. And the place where she was taken, this is what she's explaining to her family, was somewhere that she didn't understand. Like She didn't know where it was. It was somewhere hidden, somewhere secure. There were no devices she could use to get a message to the outside world. Her captors, she explained, held her against her will and forced her to bear children. Exactly how they returned her to the the local beach, is a mystery to her as well. But it sounds like a classic E.T. abduction story. But that's not the way she's explaining it. Like, her mind is a fog on how she got home, but her family is just thinking she's been abducted by some sex predator or, you know, some kind of cult has taken her mm. or something. It's just, it's this horrible thing. It's it's witchcraft. It's like a witch doctor's taken her, made her a slave for three years. That's how she's explaining it. And obviously, deeply disturbing for her family to hear this and their immediate concern is just to make her feel safe welcome her back into the home you know not make her relive this PTSD too quickly just yeah. you know hold her and make sure she's she feels welcome again but as the weeks go by it becomes clear especially to her mother that akua isn't telling them everything about what's happened and she's she can tell that akua has this constant anxiety and you know her face is just She looks way older than she is. And her mother eventually starts pleading with her daughter, saying, you know, please, please confide in me. Tell me what actually happened. Tell me the truth. And Akua eventually breaks down. And in between tears, she whispers the secret to her mother. She says, my captors were the Mami Wata. They were not human. Now, this is an incredible story. And it's something that Paul had obviously never heard before. He had no idea this was something within the family. Is the Mami Wata a known group? Something that's part of their folklore? Yeah, this is what he goes into because obviously when the family had gotten their daughter back, like I said, they thought it was witchcraft or they'd been abducted by a rapist or God knows what. Maybe a forced marriage, some kind of forced eloping, kidnapping, who knows what, slavery. But... When Akua spoke the words Mamiwata, they knew exactly what she was talking about. Because for centuries, Paul explains, the Ghanians have told stories of Mamiwata abductions. It's something that's deep within the folklore. He says the history of this narrative is so ancient that its roots have become lost. And he said, as I sat there listening to this ancestral story from my own family, he said, I learned that accounts of the Mamiwata aren't necessarily stories of ET contact. He says the Mamiwata people are generally identified as of a high intelligence. They're extraordinarily beautiful and humanoid in form. They're often very compelling with promises of advancing the, your intelligence. They will promise you uh, incredible health and prosperity as long as you go with them. Sounds and, like Fay folk though. Yeah, and they operate, so the tradition goes, out of underwater bases. It's just a bit weird. So I was thinking, is this connected to witchcraft? The The story of that crazy story of the guy who said he was taken to that underwater city and trained and by... you his body of he and his father <laughs> were suspended as they waited. Yeah, trained by the armies of Satan. Did he pull that from... Because he was from Ghana too. Did yeah, he, he just was. pull that from the local folklore of the Mamiwaka? He That's probably where he got it did,
1: from, yeah. Because right? remember, we were suspicious
0: as to his yeah. sources. And... The the Mami Wata reports, that, like this abduction narrative goes back hundreds of years at least, maybe thousands of years. It's not something that's been imported from Europe. It's an entirely separate folklore. And the reports are more often males being taken from near the beach, uh, though abductions of females, there's stories of that as well. And the purpose of these abductions, get this, according to the tradition, is hybridization. For some reason, the Mamiwata people want to create a new lineage of Mamiwata modified with human DNA.
1: It, it must have some links, though, to, to the African continent folklore, because uh, in the Sangoma book that I covered by James Hall, he briefly mentions in, in a number of times where he'd been near bodies of water because he just wanted to clear his head or go for a walk. And he had been said by the other training sangoma, or you know, the his um, mentor, yeah. that they were really worried about him because they were worried that these entities would come out of the water and take him away to utilize him for sex. Oh, right. So it's the same kind of thing. So it must be a folklore from the region.
0: Yeah, I was reading another sangoma book, a different one to what the one you covered. It was a similar thing where the boy who eventually grew up to be a sangoma, who was always warned uh, about going to the local waterhole or river. Yeah because that's where the spirit dwell. Um, but one day he just saw a jar suddenly appear in the water and start moving by. Um, and it just it came from nowhere. It was like it, it, it suddenly manifested and he was with his friend saying, what is this jar? Like, what the hell is this? Maybe we should take the jar. So they ended up going to the river and taking the jar. Was there anything in it? No, it was empty. But when they took it back to the... You know the shaman of the village or his father. They're like, "What are you doing? This is cursed! Oh my god, <laughs> take it back! Oh, it's the spirit. You've been marked." And it was this this horrible ordeal because he had taken the mummy waters jar, like taken it without giving something back in return. Yeah. Uh, so they ended up getting cursed, and <laughs> members of the family had a horrible luck after that. Yeah. But it's it it's also the same as the the mermaid folklore. Yes, very from much Wales so. and Ireland and England. Mm. It's, it's the same sort of thing. And you see the same mermaid folklore wherever Africans have gone, like in the Caribbean as well, it still exists.
1: But also Irish folk, uh, folklore as well of the, uh, the water horse, mm. you know, luring you into bodies of water to take you away. Zimbabwe
0: too, has it? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, obviously this all sounds familiar, but he connects this back to Genesis. And he says, my earliest awareness of ancient hybridization narratives came from the Bible. He says in the pages of Genesis six when the el elohim, and he explains how elohim's always been translated as God, but it actually translates to something closer to the powerful one, or the powerful ones, plural. It's a plural. Isn't that something that Scotty Roberts had looked into? I yeah, think that's something he would touched on. Yeah, we, we've been discussing this re- recently. The elohim does not translate to God. Uh, it's definitely a plural, but. His inter- interpretation is that the Elohim came down to planet Earth to take human females. Their interbreeding produced a lineage called the Nephilim, who were the giants of legend. Again, the giants come up. He says the Book of Enoch describes the abductions referenced in Genesis 6 in even greater detail, uh, where it starts talking about the watchers, how they arrived from somewhere among the stars to begin their program of producing hybrid offspring. And then he goes to ancient Greece, where they legends seem to be coming from a similar memory, except their name for the hybrids are the Titans. Mm. The Greek legends, the Hebrew mythologies, they're not the same, but he says they both report external interventions in our evolution as a species. Both outline a program of hybridization, which was not only traumatic for our ancestors, but which deeply divided the community of superior beings associated with Project Earth at that time. So there, there was a kind of war from the Elohim or within the Elohim. But heading back to Africa with the Mami water abductions, like we were just pointing out, he says they're told all across Africa. You can go to the east coast with Kenya, uh, down to the southernmost tip of South Africa, all along the western seaboard. Again, as I mentioned, the Caribbean, Haiti, Brazil, uh, Cuba. There's parallels found in these stories all in those regions, also in Alaska and the Philippines. Hmm. He says, for instance, the Luo people of Kenya have curated the story of the Nyam Godho Wod Umbare. The Nyam Godho was a Bantu man of the Waturi tribe who lived in the 14th and 15th century in the village of Nyandiwa. This is in the Suba district of Kenya near Lake Victoria. And there's this cool story that goes with it. So one morning, he found this strange looking woman caught up in one of the fishnets. mermaid As you do. Like you're just walking along the beach, you know, drinking a Coca Cola. And there's some drunk whore from the night before. <laughs> like we used to see this in Sydney all the time. We did. We
1: actually like, did. So yeah.
0: Sunday morning and going for a morning stroll. There's some some <laughs> some drunk idiot. It's just plastered a plastered on the sidewalk. But imagine if you were walking along the lake, you might find one in a fishnet.
1: Yep. <laughs> I think we actually did see that at some point.
0: She's just like she's got a spew in her hair. <laughs> she's trying to find her iPhone. She's looking for a purse. She's, she's missing a backup smeared everywhere. Yeah, she's just a complete mess. We've all seen it before. Except this this man, this fisherman in Kenya, he looks at this completely drunk skank in the fishnet he decides to marry her <laughs> he's like was she actually drunk or was the, the poor woman that we just made fun of was she somehow injured and be dragged into the water well i think my version of the story is something we can all relate to. <laughs> well, maybe maybe where well, right. you see you see some woman from the night before just completely still drunk about midday on a Sunday. Why can't it be that
1: she was a young woman going to church and she accidentally fell into the water and got tangled <laughs> up in the fishnet?
0: Yeah, she was getting a laugh together. She was on the way to church. That's how it was going, yeah. No, she was a mess stuck in fishnets. And this guy decided that was marriage material. So he, <laughs> so he marries this woman and, and lives with her because she persuades him that she can bring him unimagined wisdom and prosperity. Uh-oh. This is not a good sign. And she does all this. She actually follows through. But he he becomes a wise, almost godlike being, and he has all the riches. But he has a condition. He must never speak of her true place of origin in the water. He can never say that she's actually from the sea. It's It's identical to the tales you have from... From Ireland and England, does he find himself
1: slowly becoming emaciated though and drained of energy? No, no. Okay, so it's not like a succubus kind
0: of thing. It's no. not a. Okay. He just has a happy marriage, and there's. Well, that's good. I mean, if, who cares how it started if they're happy? Like I said, there's similar tales in in around the UK, uh, and the only the only time that the union goes wrong is when that promise is broken but and it's on. revealed. Her, her true nature is actually revealed. Well, we just told the story, so obviously it means it's been revealed at some point. What do you mean? we just told the story like if we he revealed it oh yeah I'm not sure how that works maybe someone um, found her iPhone and there's all these drunk pictures on there that's <laughs> that's how it got out and then in Kenya the Mamiwata have a different name they're called or well, they're linked with the Ginny which is the the, gin. S- the Swahili equivalent of the Gin mm-hmm. yeah uh, so this is all associated with abduction of stories as well and we could go episodes upon episodes of jinn abduction stories, it's the same thing in which a, a Kenyan man or woman encounters a strange person who is tall, white, and unbelievably beautiful. These tall white visitors, the Muharani, appear to individuals by teleportation in the Kenyan legends. Their visits begin in the contactees' childhood and continue into adulthood. On later visits, the Muharani take their contactees to bases underneath the waters of the Indian Ocean. Here, the contactees are used to produce hybrid children who, from time to time, they are allowed to see. However, the children are kept by the Muhurrani, who, after each abduction episode, return their contactees to their earthly homes unharmed and often healthier than when they left. I mean, if we leave all the joking aside, this just smacks of alien abduction. Absolutely does. Yeah, Phenomenon. But just, it's, it's, yeah, different. It's, it's all the same
1: at the core. It's just different interpretations.
0: Unless Paul is twisting it a little bit so that it, it fits perfectly. Yeah, I mean, he could be, but why? I don't think he would do that. He says the families and religious communities of Kenyans, though, they are very skeptical of this. So if someone comes and reports this, they believe that they've likely been corrupted by a, a devil or a demon, like they're possessed or something. Mm. So even within that community where the idea of it is is cultural, it's still, you're still on... The, the outskirts of society, like you're still not accepted if you claim this has happened to you. Now, he explains the elements of the Mami Wata or the Muharani folklore. Again, you can find them all over the world. There's an indigenous Filipino story of the Encantos, and the Encantos are shape-shifting entities associated, again, with water. Their humanoid appearance is almost identical to our own. They could almost pass for regular Filipinos. But again, their skin tone is much lighter. They're the pale ones, which reminds me of men in black as well. Typically, the men in black yeah. are described as having super pale skin. Uh, and they're known for abducting human beings who who get too close. The Filipino word dewatas is another word that invokes ancestral knowledge, he says, of, of non-human entities. The dewatas like to maintain a covert presence and don't take too kindly to their cover being blown. And for that for that reason, he says, people often refer to these entities in whispered conversations, and the names translate to those unlike us or those who dwell under the sea is another name for them. Well, I wonder what the link with water is, though. Is it suggesting that, I don't want
1: to go as far as to say that they're they're inhabiting somewhere underwater, but this is what all the legends are saying, isn't it?
0: Yeah. That they're all coming from some... Probably because that's where they're from. They're not from outer space. They're from under the water. These strange dewarters, he says, are physical beings similar enough to humans that they're able to procreate with those they take in order to create hybrid people. Again, Paul points out, does any of this sound familiar? He, he points out the Filipino version may have roots that originated in India uh, because he goes into the the Sanskrit root for the word devata, which means God or superior being, um, uh, he talks about Haitian versions of this, uh, African slaves and brought to the Caribbean talking about the Yamoja, which is another version of this. It's just the same template of a story repeated everywhere. Yeah. So it must be based on something. You know it can't just be that all these separated cultures came up with the same creepy story to scare their children with. And then you've got tales of people disappearing and coming back three years later claiming that they were taken to some you know, place they didn't recognise and made to breed. But it's so similar to European folklore. It's just a different colour. It's a different shade. So one argument is that these are memories of slavery and that they're just describing foreigners taking people away. And Paul points out this is kind of absurd because, uh, first of all, they're being returned in most cases. And it just doesn't... It's a completely different pattern... Uh, when they're being returned unharmed, especially. Now, this is where he starts going into the Irish iterations, uh, the 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 European versions of this folklore, which I won't go into because I think we've covered a lot of that. And you you get the gist of what he's pointing out here. But he he has this interesting uh, little section where he goes back to the first story he's ever heard about abductions and hybridization. and this was in in 1985, in July of 1985. He's he's Father was um doing something to do with with travel, like because 1985 had a lot of terrorist attacks, a lot of world bombings. And he just says, My my father's work is in combating the impact of these troubles. And I was just like, okay, well, is your dad in the CIA or something? just you know, say he's a, an accountant or something. Don't make it so obvious that it's covert. But he said, as part of his father's work his family was in Greece for the summer and they they made it into a holiday. They were touring the Greek islands and uh, he says, we were the guest of a Greek shipping magnate, Andreas uh, Potomianos. And, you know, he starts talking about these travels, how they went through, through Crete and saw Knossos, which is this incredible megalithic site dating back to the Bronze Age. Now, of course, we know Knossos was the home to the Minoan civilization, which was between 3000 and 1000 BCE. Advanced maritime culture, incredible architecture, amazing plumbing. And they even had buildings designed for airflow management. So they basically had air conditioning, um, ancient air conditioning. Mm. But on one of these trips, Paul said he asked a question to the guide. He said, who exactly were the Minoans that they were so advanced? Where exactly did they come from? And the answer he got was a story he'd never heard before. The guide said the Minoan culture appeared 5,000 years ago. They were the people of the great ruler Minos. And Minos was a powerful man, although he wasn't really a man. He was a hybrid. The mother of Minos was a very beautiful woman. She was the daughter of Agenor, a king of the Phoenicians. One day she was walking on the beach with her young friends and her beauty drew the attention of the ruler of the gods whose name was Zeus he instantly decided that he must have her then she's kind of walking along the beach and all of a sudden she notices <laughs> <laughs> yeah. she notices that there's a bull walking beside her this gentle bull and the bull captivates the young woman with its animal beauty and gentle spirit as bulls do. You know, when you're walking along the beach and there's a giant farm animal suddenly next to you and instead of going, holy crap, you're like, Oh, what is this gentle bull doing? I can honestly say that that has never happened She's anyone. She strokes the animal and pets it and something compels her to mount the bull whereupon the bull gallops into the waves, taking her far from her home and family in Phoenicia, all the way here, he says, to the island of Crete, and it is here on this very island. So she arrives on the island. She's like, "Oh my god, this bull is like a speedboat because it's like flying through the water, and she's just <laughs> holding on for dear life." She eventually <laughs> makes
1: Isn't some weird hydrofoil <laughs> bull. This is like going through the water, <laughs> zzzz, it to its horn?
0: churning through the water, and she eventually makes it to the island. And the bull transforms into this. A handsome man. Like, he's just radiating tea. Like, he spent all morning rubbing eggshells into his balls. And he's, sunning them. He's been sunning, sunning them, them all morning. He is so incredibly beautiful and handsome. And he's got like 7% body fat. He looks amazing. And Jaws. he seduces this young woman. And eventually, she produces three sons Jaws. under him. There's uh, Radam- Radamanthus, Sarpedon, and Minos. And of course, Minos becomes the ruler of the Minoan culture, Minos's mother's name, the woman that was seduced by the bull, was Europa. The entire continent of Europe is named after her. Wait, so the, the entire continent of Europe is named after an abductee who gave birth to three hybrids. <laughs> it's an interesting way to look at it. It is, yes. <laughs> and that's kind of blown his mind, this idea that and Minos obviously eventually became the king of Crete and, and she was accepted by by the, the people and uh, Zeus was eventually killed in a battle. But basically the takeaway is, yeah, Europe is named after an abductee. Zeus was not a god. Zeus was a flesh and blood being that could interact with humans and mate with them. And, you know, this is something that really kind of blew his mind this and really solidified and cemented the fact that this whole interacting with higher beings and giving birth to hybrids isn't just this crazy idea that's in an ancient aliens episode it's embedded in so many cultures around the world well you can see how
1: it fits in with fae you know folklore and these are almost um traditions that have i've always thought that something behind these traditions is that it's uh, stories to scare children and to act as a warning for people to stay away from certain dangerous locations. So that's why water would come up quite frequently. Yes.
0: Don't be seduced by a farm animal.
1: Well, that's probably a good warning as well because you could be kicked in the head or yes, in this circumstance, (laughs) dragged into the water and impregnated. But I think that it's probably more than that because that's an argument. It's quite a skeptical argument that's put forward is that no, 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 this is all about just warning people. Mm. But I think you're right. I think there's more to it. And all these cultures that across all different times seem to have the same or very very similar stories, not identical, but very similar, suggest to me that they are interacting with a group that is being interpreted differently, but are the same.
0: And it just suggests that there's some event, there's something that happened in the deep history of our human race that really is like a science fiction movie. Absolutely. It really is something bizarre and insane that happened. And but I wonder if the Younger Dryas event
1: is what wiped it out. Like, where did the story disappear? Like, how does something go from being an event that took place that was witnessed by so many people and was readily accepted to becoming folklore? Like, there must have been a point where something changed. Yeah, when civilization
0: dramatically, is destroyed. collapsed. Yeah. yeah. Now it, it, this is where it goes back to the personal narrative again, because he says at the end of that trip, uh, their final stop was Athens. Did they end? No, well, they were getting ready for a dinner, and he had to change into, uh, you know, like a formal attire for the evening. And as he was getting changed, he was looking in the bathroom mirror, and he saw something that he couldn't understand how it got there. On his belly, just below uh, and to one side of the navel, were three strange raised lines. He said they were about eight centimeters long, with a pinprick effect that almost looked like the scar you would get from vaccinations. And he says, look, I haven't had an inoculation in my belly. It's, it's not something I would forget. And being mere 20 years old, he says, I, I, I take myself into the next cabin. <laughs> and he's like, mom, what is this? <laughs> and his mom just comes and have a look and says, oh, it's probably just a rash, dear, nothing to worry about. But he says it, it didn't look like a rash to me. I don't know what it is. And how long has it been there? Whatever it is, he said. I put my mind on other things and forgot about it. But indeed, he said it will be many years before I even remember the thing that happened in 1985. So here's this personal experience again. Remember, this is the same year that he woke up in Bath and had these strange beings in the glow of his bedroom that he never cared to explain (laughs) this this again this strange mark on his belly what is going on will we get answers now the the book here i have to recommend it because it's not an incredibly long book but he manages to pack in a huge amount of research it's about 180 pages but he talks about westall the abduction case or contact case here in australia the 66 case yeah he talks about abduction cases uh, he talks about uh, juan perez from Argentina in 1978 which is Aaron's personal favourite case is it the
1: guy that his horse was like chewed up and ground up and then served to him yes that's the guy right yeah he's Are he met his
0: rat? grandfather he he cries a lot <laughs> basically the documentary is this where he's like I saw a UFO they killed my horse <laughs> then I hit <eat> the rat <laughs> then I cried then I talked to this man named Jacques. He make documentary. Naith Morat. <laughs> it's that. It's that for 90 minutes. Yeah, that documentary is terrible. And everyone's like, oh, oh you so wonderful. You've got to see this documentary. It's so moving. The guy's crying because he's traumatized <laughs> because they ground up his yeah. horse and fed it to him. Dude, it's like, it's a 10 minute story. <laughs> at most. And yes, it's very sad, but my gosh, talk about <laughs> milking the emotion for every single drop. Oh, it's ridiculous. So he talks about that. Uh, he talks about Giordano Bruno. On. I should ask, why does he talk about that? What does he mention about? Does he, what does he think about to it? To be honest, I just glazed over it. Yeah, right. Because You've had enough rap. The gist of it is they ate his horse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, he talks about ancient Mesopotamia, UFO politics, uh, debating the meaning of the Gospels. There's a ton of stuff in here. But again, I, I was trying to pull out this personal narrative to, to figure out what had happened to the guy. What is this strange mark on his belly? What happened to him when he was back in England with the weird light in his bedroom? So he talks about a trip he he made to Sydney uh, just a couple of years ago, or last year in 2020. He said uh, he was going to it was like a, a gathering of researchers on the ET phenomena. So okay. More to, to do with experiences of abductions. And he talks about uh, the, these people that he met. Uh, there was one friend he he fell into a conversation with, a Cherokee friend, who started uh, talking about the Pleiades and its links to Native American tribes. He talked about the Lakota people of the upper Mississippi claiming their ancestors originated in the Pleiades and that when humans die, their consciousness returns to the Pleiades. Uh, he he talks about how this mirrors with the the Emperor Zhu Yuanzhang, that the founder of the Ming Dynasty, who apparently his tomb is aligned with the Pleiades. All these weird connections with the Pleiades comes up, um, and it, you know he shares a couple of so-called Native American tribal stories that connect to the Pleiades as well. But there are a lot of them. Like, it's it's odd that when you look into this,
1: you know, I know, we've been talking a lot about folklore recently, but there are so many connections about uh, depictions of that constellation.
0: Yes, they come up. Yeah, there's like, how al- do they know it? There's a definite connection. I'm also pretty skeptical of 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 anyone who says that's our tribe story because Why when, say you, that? when you look into it a bit more, apparently, there's also like it's saying that that's our tribal story is kind of like saying, well, that's what white people believe, or that's oh, what course, Australians that's what believe. Saying. Yeah, you know, there's there's a ton of different beliefs within even within that one tribe. Yeah, so different cultural the, groups. The researcher I was reading pointed out that I, I can't remember what tribe he was talking about. Say it was the Lakota. He's like, there's one Lakota aspect, like there's one Lakota group within that tribe who says all that stuff's bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> and they're right. just complete traditionalists who shun all the technology. They, their interpretation of those stories is completely different. And there's the other more progressive version of the tribe that it seems like they've taken a lot of this the star people, ancient aliens kind of... You know what I mean? Like, that, You think it's been influenced from more modern stories? Yeah, like they're influenced by the internet yeah. and, and stories that they hear on the, on the internet and yeah. watch on TV and hear about in movies. Uh, and another side of the tribe thinks that's all nonsense. So who do you believe? Like who actually has the root cultural story? Do you know who I believe? People that, and it's so rare to find them, but I think you've got to go
1: into the elders. You've got to go into the people that have really been untouched by the modern internet age. That are less likely to be influenced by that. I mean, yeah, I mean the stories could only just simply be coming from, you know, uh, their own family members and and traditions. But I think that's how things have been
0: transmitted through the generations. Well, the researcher I was was reading, he said essentially the same thing you're saying, that yeah, you've got to go to the elders. But the results were the elders just told him to fuck off. (laughs) Yeah, because and And they don't want to talk to anyone because they're. They're, an they're insular preserving. tribe.
1: Absolutely. This is something that Dr. Artie sixkiller Clark pointed out, and this is why I really love her books, because w- what she does is she tends to t- try and find people that are more insular and, you know, uses her connections and uses her, her ability to allow them to tell those stories, get them to share those stories. You've got to bring
0: them a gift. I find well, that yes. Beats headphones usually works really well. <laughs> That's a long story. <laughs> you, you, you give him a gift. That's a little You little can't thing. just come and ask yeah. for tribal stories without some kind of Beats headphones package.
1: You're right, yes. But also tobacco and coffee. Is yeah, option, the
0: usual it? traditional stuff. But make sure you bring Indians Beats headphones.
1: We're not going there. I'm never revealing that story. <laughs>
0: Uh, private jokes work so well on a podcast <laughs> yeah, that, that, with that, thousands and thousands yeah, of listeners. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, People know that story. We've told that story on the show. No, we haven't. Yes, we have. No, I don't think we have. Okay. Um, <laughs> so one of the Native Americans that he runs into in this conference in Sydney starts talking about this mark that he got, this strange uh, mark well, he's just Is it a burn? Is that what he, I mean, I know he said it was like a thought it was a rash. No, well, this guy's name's Dean, and he claims that he also has he has Cherokee roots, but he works in environmental management and he was managing this site in regional New South Wales, a state where we used to live. And it was just after lunch, and the team members were arriving back from their breaks and they were taking up their places around the site. And he says at precisely 2 p.m., the sky got really dark. And he said everyone looked up expecting to see storm clouds, but instead there was this enormous saucer shaped craft hovering over them. The next thing anyone remembered was lying in a crumpled heap on the grass and feeling like crap. Oh. And they were all looking around, going, What the hell happened? Oh. Like just, like they'd just been obliterated by something. They looked at their watches. It was now 4 p.m. And not a single one of them had any recollection of the previous two hours. So Paul hears this story and he's like, Dean, do you have any physical evidence or any idea of what happened during that missing time? And Dean says, yeah, I've actually got a photograph. And he said, when we all came to, we could see that one of our team was quite distressed. He said, we gathered around her and saw that she had three marks on her upper arm, three raised lines in the shape of three fingers. They were raw and red like a burn mark or almost like an allergic reaction to something that had touched her bare skin. He said, I took a photograph of her arm and I've always kept it. And he says, well, how long were these finger marks? And Dean replied, about eight centimetres. That's a pretty big burn or mark. Yeah, well, finger size, something grabbing her. Now... He asked, look, Dean, have you ever thought about doing some regression therapy to see if any other memories surface? And he just straight up says, nope, don't want to do that. Don't care. Not interested in memories. No, thanks. I don't mm. ever want to know. I'd so rather not know. Traumatized. Well, he doesn't want to be traumatized by remembering
1: what happened. But that means I think on some level he must know something has happened to him.
0: Yeah, well, I'm obviously you can read between the lines. I mean, he's at an ET conference. So, you know. Now, Paul says, I can understand Dean's reluctance to retrieve more memory of the encounter. After a trauma, our brains often block out the recollection of experiences if it might be too painful to remember. But he said that three-fingered scar, something about it bothered me. I would want to know what it was if it was me. If I had lost time, I would want to remember, wouldn't I? And he says as he's riding on the bus back to Canberra from Sydney after this conference... He's staring out at the landscape and he can feel something simmering in the back of his mind, some vague memory. And he takes us back to 1985 again. He's 25 years old and he's standing in uh, Great Pulteney Street, again in Bath in, the, in, in England. And this very attractive young lady, this beautiful lady, has just seen him and called out his name. And he's like, uh, do we know each other? And he's got this, like, she seems familiar, but his recollection is all foggy. But he starts talking to this woman and she starts referencing places and events from the last couple of days. But Paul's memory is completely blank. He doesn't really know what she's talking about. But desperately, because she's this beautiful woman, he tries to keep the conversation going, like just faking that he knows what she's talking about. But ultimately, it doesn't work. And the conversation kind of fades out and he's frustrated and and embarrassed. But it's really strange because this stunner, this perfect 10 out of 10 woman is acting like she knows who he is. They've spent time together. They've done things together. They've gone to places together. And he's 100% blanking on it. It's weird. She's not the kind of woman you would forget. And... Another half memory jostles its way to the surface. I mean, I'm kind of stitching all this together and he weaves all this incredible research on ancient history throughout the book. But again, I'm just kind of picking out his personal narrative. But again, he this this fading memory. He's in his flat. It's a bright sunny day in 1985. He's studying the gospels. He's preparing for his first job in, in the world of ministry. And the buzzer for his apartment rings and he goes and answers and this woman says hi paul it's julie just passing by and I, I thought I'd call in for coffee and he says julie and i seem to know each other and he like he invites her up and she starts uh, talking about their previous conversations and he's like yeah it's nice like we chat idly I brew a fresh pot of coffee and she, she mentions like, she's mostly talking about herself. Like she, she's moved to a house in the village nearby just around the corner and he knows which house it is. And, you know, they're just having a chat. She's like, "Oh," and she knows all this stuff about his life. Like she knows things about him. So he's just going along with this conversation. She's like, okay, I'll see you later. Uh, We'll catch up later. Bye. And she leaves. And he's like, I have no fucking idea who that was. (laughs) I absolutely no idea. How is this possible? This has actually happened to me once in my life where a woman started talking to me as if she knew me and I have no, I have no idea who she was. And she spoke to me for like, I know exactly what this guy went through because she spoke to me for about five minutes. And I was just like, yeah, cool. Uh uh-huh. huh. How's, how's everything with, with you? Um, <laughs> Diplomatic. How was so the... how's everything with the uh, things? How's, yeah. And she just, she knew all this stuff about me. Like she's asking me all these questions. Is this while you're podcasting? This was a couple of years ago in Sydney. It makes me wonder if maybe she recognized you. She knew my name, like she knew my name was Ben, but I think I think she was confusing me with another Ben. Because there was another guy that kind of looks like me and my group of friends who was also named Ben. Oh. And my- I think she knew I was the other Ben. <laughs> she thought I was the other Ben. But by the time... It was too awkward for you to yeah, say. Yeah, by the time I, I real, Because it was like 10 minutes in and she wouldn't shut up. I, there was no point in the conversation after the first 30 seconds <laughs> you could say, I don't where know I, I could say, you I have actually never met you in my life. I don't know who you are and I, I don't want to talk to you anymore. There was no opportunity to say that. So I know what this guy went through. But imagine, like, them coming up to your apartment and you brew a cup of coffee and, like, 20-minute chat and you have no idea who this person is. This is where being polite is not good.
1: I'm all for being polite, but sometimes you're just going to be like, I don't know who the hell you are. <laughs> well, it's because he's British. Yeah, this is why they drowned in the Titanic. This yeah. is why Americans were more likely to survive. You'd be like,
0: I've no fucking idea who you are. Get out of my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'd be polite. No, I'd be polite. I know you. I, you would be so polite. I'd
1: be polite, but I'd also be like, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are.
0: Yeah. Wow, well, where do was we I meet drunk? again? L-l-l- remind me, where did we meet? That would be a good way to do it. Yeah. Um so I've that,
1: actually done that. Actually, now I think of it, I've actually done that. I've been standing at the counter somewhere, I remember, and I turned around and I saw someone that I thought I worked with. And I was like, hi. And she was like, <laughs>
0: hi. And then we both <laughs>
1: stop. And I'm like, I'm really embarrassed. But straight away, I was like, I'm so sorry. You look identical to someone I know. And she's like, so do you. Yeah.
0: The, another a similar thing happened to me uh, before we moved here from Sydney. I, I went to buy uh, a, an appliance, right? From uh, It was Bing Lee, one of our appliance stores. Uh, and I, I think I was buying a microwave or something. And I go in and I get the microwave and I'm checking out. And the guy that serves me is a South African dude I worked with for like three years in retail. Like, I was his assistant manager and, you know, we were friends, talked every day, great guy. And I'm like, Richard, we used to work together. Hey, man, how you going? And he just gave me this, <laughs> Blank he stare. gave me this NPC stare where <laughs> nothing was computing. I'm like, dude, it's me. We used to, we worked together for three years. Like, it's Ben. Nothing? And he's just like, no. <laughs> he's just like, no. I I think what it was is because he was still in retail, (laughs) because this was like 20 years ago. There's nothing wrong with retail. He had died inside (laughs) like 10 years ago. So he was still a human (laughs) up until 10 years ago when finally the final spark inside him was extinguished. (laughs) And he was just an NPC robot, like just going through the motions. Like that part of his RAM had already been erased. So he genuinely just didn't recognize me. He just did, had no idea what was going on. Oh, that happens to some people, though. I mean, you meet a whole heap of people when you're young and you no, forget about them. Not when you've worked with someone for three years.
1: I went to high school with someone for five years, like in Australia in Queensland. You go to high school for five, is it five years, something like that. Yeah, five years. And I, I met up with them on Facebook years later. She had no recollection of who I was at all, right? Until I'm like, no, it's Aaron. Like, we did these classes together. She's yeah. Like, n- nothing, right? Until finally, like months later, she messages me and she's like, oh, I remember you. You're the guy that has no time for fools. I'm like, yeah,
0: that was me. <laughs> that was me. What's also possible is that he hated my guts that <laughs> en- entire three years.
1: And he was trying to restrain himself from punching
0: in yeah, the face. and as soon as I left the story, he's like, I hate that, I hate that fucking guy. He's a dickhead. <laughs> I hate that Ben Grundy. He's a dickhead. <laughs> That's probably what happened. I understand how he feels. It's hard sometimes. Yeah. No, I'm joking. That's terrible. Yeah, so bizarre situation. And- this has now happened to him twice with these strange, very attractive women. And he has no explanation for it. He, he cannot understand what's going on. Now, he explains that he has an incredibly good memory. Like, it's known among his family that he has the ability to have exact verbal recall. So he has an eidetic memory. Of, of conversations from years ago. And pe- he says it's not always a virtue. Like, it's kind of annoying to some people that he remembers in such detail. So the fact that he has these massive holes in his memory in 1985, the same year that his bedroom was filled with this strange glowing light and these beings appeared.
1: Yeah, well, this is what you can infer, right? It's obvious that it's seeming like he's being messed with these beings. They're continuing to invade into his life. And I don't know if this is some type of weird psychometric testing that they're running on him. Um, But it appears, just from the context of this story, that they are part of this group.
0: Well, he has no idea. And he kind of skips ahead to something that happened in uh, our Australian capital territory in in July of last year. He was on a call with uh, this woman from Massachusetts. Her name is Patricia. She's a senior professional with a background in high level scientific research. She works with a major corporation and she's sharing with Paul a sequence of encounters that occurred to her way back in the 1970s when she was a college student in New Mexico. And this this town called uh, Portales and it was this chapter of a life where one afternoon she says she was entertained by a a group of people she'd only met them very briefly but they've stuck in her mind ever since this strange event in 1970 she said the people were tall light-skinned blonde-haired and had this you know real kind of Scandinavian look about them But she just said they were the most perfectly beautiful people she had ever seen. Now, the girl in the group was uh, claiming to to be a fellow student, was very talkative, very friendly, and had a very strong interest in Patricia. She couldn't quite understand, just super, super friendly. And the two men that were with this woman were huge, like very, very tall looked identical in appearance. She was convinced they were twins. Their dress was the same. Their haircuts were the same. And they appeared to have an almost telepathic communication between the two of them. And at some point in this social gathering, she doesn't give, well, he doesn't give much detail as to what this was, a party or they met at a cafe or who knows what this was. But suddenly something about the situation set off an alarm bell deep in her mind that just went, ding, ding, ding. Something's not right here. Something's slightly askew with this situation. And she asked them to be driven home. And finally, she's like, oh, and she climbs into a bed and goes to sleep. But before she goes to sleep, she's like, how did I get home? She, Autopilot. She has no memory of how she got home. All she remembers is asking these strange people blonde people, beautiful, ridiculous supermodel blonde people that she wanted to be taken home. And then the next memory is she's lying down in her bed ready to go to sleep. And it's just stuck with her, her entire life that something's off
1: with this whole thing. This is very, it's not the same, but it's similar to the research of people like uh, David Jacobs with the invaders or the infiltrators uh, Mac Toney's and his uh, research into the crypto terrestrials. I mean, that's probably more aligned with what this could be because with Mac Toney's stuff, it's like there's a group of people that are the crypto terrestrials. And I shouldn't say people, there's a group of entities mm. that will interact with humanity and they've been doing it for eons. They're here, they're part of us, but they hide in the shadows. This seems to be the same kind of thing. Well, she's now convinced
0: they were Pleiadians. (laughs) But where does she get Pleiadians from? Why does she just go to that? Probably because, you know, it's, it's now, what, 40 years later, and it's plenty of time to read... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, it's fifty years later. Yeah, UFO information and and then and automatically go to the Pleiadians. Google beautiful white humanoids coming down. This is like why the, not the Pleiadians? The, why are you so anti-Pleiadian? Because they could come from anywhere. Why do
1: you automatically assume that it's the Pleiadians?
0: They also could have come from Norway.
1: <laughs> well, okay. right? well, this is the thing, right? Let's just let's put the paranormal element aside.
0: Maybe she was just, I don't know, overwhelmed by their astonishing glacial beauty. I guess the biggest thing with that story that has made it so weird for her is the missing time. I mean, she really had missing time. No recollection. Well, that's the thing. Normally when you meet people from Norway, you don't go on (laughs) autopilot to get home and have missing time. Yeah. And and when she got home, it was 2am as well. So she did have a bunch of, a big stack of time that was missing. Did she have marks? burns, anything to indicate physical trace evidence. No, nothing like that is ex- explained. But the reason he mentions this is because, again, he takes us back to 1985. It seems like 1985 was when everything happened to Paul. It's springtime. Again, he's still he's 20. And he says the night is dark, it's unseasonably warm, and he's in uh, Cheshire, visiting his friends Rich and Trace. And he's on his way to their college digs, he says, but on the way, he needs to pick up some wine and he needs to get some healthy snacks, so he goes to this store called Holland and Barrett, this local health food store, and it's like a specialist store. You know, you've probably got stores like that where you live, where it's ridiculously expensive, and you just buy like a little jar of sultanas, and it's like twelve dollars, and they're organic, <laughs> vegan. Salt-tanas. Yeah, they're all actively charged almonds, yeah. like that kind of place. So he goes there, and and the the place is surprisingly busy for that time of night, and there's about 10 people spaced throughout the store. But there's something strange, very strange, about two people in the store. And he says, like a magnet, my attention is drawn instantly to two very tall individuals. In fact, they are a couple, and the woman is pushing a stroller. They're light-skinned with blonde hair. And again, he just says, incredibly attractive, like straight out of a, a magazine cover. And he says, as a 20-year-old male, I'm not usually taken with the attractiveness of married couples, but these three are simply the most perfectly beautiful people I've ever seen. Now, he says three because they've got a child with them. They've got a toddler, but they just have this perfectly chiseled, athletic, Scandinavian look about them. And he says, not only are they physically stunning. But all three of them, he says, are radiating the most powerful aura of calm and peace and ease. I can't even describe it. But the feeling they're projecting is giving me elation. He tangibly feels it in the air. Now, he starts to watch them as they're shopping this weird vegan health food store. And the woman's gone on ahead and is taking things off the shelf and putting them into the basket. And the man is on the other side of the store doing the same thing. They never speak, but somehow their shopping is perfectly coordinated. But like, how, how do you perfectly coordinate your shopping? Because, you know, normally when a normal person goes shopping, you're like, oh, I need that. Yeah, you got to find it. Okay, there it is. Put it in your basket. Oh, where's that thing? Yep. Yeah, okay. Okay, there it is. blah, blah. blah. They're, they're not like that. They're like Terminator precision. Shoppers, where they know exactly where everything is, and it's it's like watching uh, one of those Boston Dynamics robots yeah, robot, yeah. go shopping. Mm. It's it's very very strange, and it's almost like they're working together. Like they finally reach the checkout together, and he's like, "No one shops like that. There's no fumbling around the shelves. There's no they don't they don't speak to each other at all. It's it's really bizarre. It's like they're communicating without words, or almost maybe." They're pretending to shop while throwing off this incredible energy. And he says, I watch them completely fixated and I don't understand why. Why are they affecting me like this? What's their secret? What have they got? And he says, for a very fleeting moment, it occurs to him that these unusual, beautiful people might not be human. And he says, as soon as he has this thought, the moment it emerges from his mind, their toddler goes, and he like snaps him out of it. He's like, oh no, hang on a second. They've got this toddler with them. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Why would these aliens have a child with them? Uh, The man pays for the the purchase without a word and they leave the store. And when he's checking out, he's like something in his body is like, I've got to catch up to them. I've got to find them. I've got to, I've got to talk to them. I've got to grab them and say, who are you? And then he stops and says, that would be the weirdest thing anyone's ever done to anyone. <laughs> like, yeah, of course it is. Like, imagine stopping someone in the supermarket and say, who are you? But he says, as I join the dots between the stories, the Hebrew stories of Abraham's visitation and the visitors of Sodom, and he talks about the tall whites and the Nordics and Patricia in Massachusetts, he says, I now realize there are, are probably a few categories of beings besides human or angel in the great diversity of of a populated universe. and So what's he saying these beings are? He doesn't know, but he's linking it with these weird beautiful women just popping into his life and and acting like they know him and he has no recollection of them. He's connecting it with that. He's connecting it to this strange experience he had that same year in his bedroom with the glowing light and the beings at the foot of his bed. And now this ridiculously attractive couple with their very fashionable toddler, like he's decked out in the latest gear and he just looks like a supermodel toddler, <laughs> if there is such a thing. He's convinced that they're not human as well. There's something going on. So where is all this going? Yeah, we- that's what I'm thinking.
1: I'm like, well, okay, I mean, you can have your speculation as to something going on, but where's any of your proof?
0: Well, ultimately, he, he starts talking to Barbara Lamb and I'm sure you know Barbara Lamb. Course, She's yes. the abduction researcher. She puts people into hypnotic regression, pulls out their memories. And she starts talking about these beings, how they have a way of switching us off. And she explains to Paul, because he interviews her for the book, that often you'll have an abductee and you know how they can't wake up their husband or wife. They can't wake up whoever else they're with. They're, they've, they've been switched off. And the abductees' memories before... they they get taken is this moment before they're switched off and she actually says to Paul your memory of pulling the covers over your head before you know after seeing these beings in your bedroom with the glowing light that's the memory you have before you were switched off and she says it's actually quite common and he's like all the years that I've dealt with this memory the idea of it being common is not something (laughs) I would associate with it but she starts sharing all these reports of clients with, with similar memories. And this is where I like Paul's take on this because he's shocked by how mild her language is. He says many of the experiences whose stories she relates use the same kind of non-judgmental language towards their abductors. He says it's puzzling. Uh, he has this story of an Australian nurse, Jane Pooley, who gets taken multiple times. And he says he says she speaks in warm, affectionate terms about the beings who take her. Stockholm Syndrome. And that's exactly what he says. This is a psychological phenomenon. This is Stockholm Syndrome. Yep, that's exactly what it is. He says kidnappers deliberately exploit the phenomenon as a way of manipulating and managing their captives. And he says, look, to be overpowered by something we can't fight and don't understand, this is the greatest horror. There is no reframing in the world that can relieve the pain of that. Abduction is abuse," he says. Full stop. Nothing makes it acceptable. And he starts going into some of the things he's seen with uh, the the Royal Commission into institutional uh, sexual abuse, child sexual abuse in Australia. Oh yeah, uh, because apparently the church was involved and um, like involved in the the, the research and no, no, they were involved in a professional standards team. He says. Uh, looking at institutional responsible, r- responses to child sexual abuse in Australia, and he says that work forced me to engage with some darker realities. And he starts talking about the human aspect of this abduction phenomenon, how it. And he starts, he kind of does this rant, which I think would be an interesting book. He's talking about Hollywood. He's talking about um, the the Epstein Maxwell case. He's he's tying in all these things, and he starts talking about human children going missing all over the world. And he says to acknowledge that there may be an equally ancient non-human aspect to the phenomenon is both disturbing and terrifying. But I'm getting to the end of this. And and there was a point where I said to you today, I just kind of turned the page and that was the end of the book. Yeah, just abruptly finished. And I was like, well, dude, what what happened? You're speaking with Barbara Lamb? And But
1: was she able to pull back those layers and understand what happened at the moment that you were switched off or after that moment? I know. I
0: went back and I, I, I reread the last couple of pages and then I caught it. He said, Today, as I sit in the comfort of Barbara Lamb's waiting room, I'm feeling ready to delve more deeply into the recesses of my own mind and recover whatever lost memories may lie there waiting to resurface in book three. I'm like, Oh! He's setting it up for the next book. Oh, cheeky bastard.
1: Yeah, we can't blame him for that. <laughs> cheeky bastard. That is cheeky. But what I'm still at a loss to understand is like, I thought you were saying that this is him interpreting Genesis. Where oh, is, just, where does
0: any of that oh, come to it? I just skipped all that. Like I said, I was just interested in his personal narrative. I was trying to get to what actually happened to him because he set it up with this story of the beings in his bedroom. Right. So. I was following that thread basically like picking out some interesting stories, but basically discarding a lot of that because I wanted to find out where this was going and it's going into his next book coming out probably next year. It is fascinating,
1: however, that, you know, he's got these theories about things like, you know, Genesis and the way that it's interpreted and the guy's an abductee. Like he's clearly an abductee. Obviously he's an abductee. And, you know, one thing that I've heard, and this is only speculation, but- this is why this whole uh, disclosure thing is so dangerous is because extraterrestrials are trying to influence our understanding of religious texts and trying to change the fundamental roots of society. And it's like, okay, I can see why this is a really murky, dangerous area to get into. But this, like a story like this, just kind of reinforces that. Like it just repeats it over and over again.
0: Yeah, and I I like the insinuation, even though it's crazy. Of course. I like the insinuation that there's hot Pleiadians going shopping when you're going shopping. You've got to keep a lookout for them. <laughs> I don't you get, get actually, that part of it, though. You should actually stop them. Like, if you see a ridiculously hot person who looks vaguely Scandinavian, you should stop them <laughs> and say, are you a Pleiadian? Please don't do that. I don't want people being arrested for... Why would you be arrested? There's nothing bad that can come of that scenario. Oh, no. First of all, if you're single and it's someone you're interested in... It's the perfect like conversation opener. Because then you basically... It's a compliment. You're saying, look, you're so hot. I think you might be out of this world. Okay, so so this, that's <laughs> terrible. That's a, did you Obviously, use that pick-up line? You, that's awful. You wouldn't say it that way. But if you genuinely want to find out that they're a Pleiadian, it, it could lead to a nice relationship. Okay. I think it's a good way to sure, open ben. a conversation.
1: Well, okay, let's, let's look at it from a different perspective, right? Let's imagine that you're the hot Pleiadian-looking person. <laughs> and you're standing... In there. And some Snorlax comes up to you yeah. and is like, excuse me, are you a idiot because yeah. you're out of this
0: world? You, you, they are got to take their puffer first. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? Well, I, <laughs> I don't know. I'd be flattered. I'd be flattered if someone if someone thought I was a... The <laughs> would everyone would be flattered by that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh God! All right, then scrap that story. Then we'll we'll forget that. Let's uh, move into the uh, the sources of not the sources of death. I'm sorry, the cauldrons mm-hmm. of death. And uh, this relates to a story that we touched on many many years ago. And I'll just give you some of the original detail, so we can just recall it, but it's a, it's a completely new aspect to this. And this comes from the research of a Russian researcher by the name of Valery Yuvarov. Um, and Yuvarov, back in the early 2000s, looked into this in some great depth. And he was talking about Northwestern uh, Yakutia. This is in Siberia. This is in the Siberian Tiger. And there's a lot of folklore from this region about these tremendous cataclysms that have been taking place for eons. Like When I'm talking eons, we're talking for thousands of years And there's one particular incident that seemingly occurred around 800 years ago that just toppled the entire forest cover in the region. It scattered stone fragments hundreds of square kilometers around. It distributed them into areas that were beyond what we would think they would go to. And, you know, the idea was that, well, this was some type of of explosion that was a result of a, a meteorite. But then, of course, we have the Tunguska explosion that happened in 1908
0: as well. Right. Is this area some type of magnet for meteorites that keep on coming in? I think that's what came up before when we researched this. There was the speculation that there's something about this region that pulls asteroids in from the asteroid belt. Absolutely. Unfortunately. Well,
1: not, not necessarily unfortunately.
0: It may have been done for a particular reason. Oh, like for mining or something?
1: Well, I don't know. So It's, it's more for maybe, it's
0: like a, a protective defense mechanism. And I'll go into what uh, Uvarov believes. Wasn't that one of the uh, suggested techniques of one of these n- new space companies? I can't remember who was behind it, but I remember talking about it on the show years ago that this was one of their business plans was technology to bring an asteroid into space. You're right. near yeah. Earth orbit, so you could actually start mining it and then effectively bring it back to Earth. Yeah, well, Yuvorov is looking at it from the perspective of uh, a very ancient
1: civilization has developed a highly advanced uh, technological defensive system to protect Earth from incoming meteorites. And uh, the reason why they all come here is because the system that has been built fires from this particular location. So it draws them in. So if they're coming towards Earth, it draws them to this location so that these... Essentially, they look like 60-foot-wide uh, uh, balls of electricity or balls of lightning mm. that fly up and hit these meteorites and tear them apart. And it seems to happen with a regularity of about six to 700 years. And the local, the nomadic tribes, the Yakut people, believe that um, look this remote area, first of all, is known as the Valley of Death. But they think that there was some powerful civilization in the past that built this system to protect the planet as a whole. And so what happens, which is very, very strange when you look into the traditions and into, you know, into the folklore, and the problem is a lot of it is from oral traditions that have mm. been written down. Um, but in the ancient times, the nomadic people, um, it, was, it was like it was a, a trading route that was used and they were called the Avnek people. And it was used up until about the 1930s, I believe. And this story came out from this merchant who was using it in the 1930s that he told to his granddaughter. And the granddaughter just reported that one day, apparently, the, the grandfather had come across this small, flattened, reddish kind of arc It looked like copper that was a big dome in the ground. It was just below the permafrost. Yeah. This is, these are great, these stories. Oh, they're incredible, right? And so this little girl says that, um, it wasn't that she just told him, once she got taken to it, mm. she said that he led her down into this spiral passageway that was inside this metal chamber, which they spent the night inside. And the grandfather had said, look, even when it's the harshest of, of winter outside, it's warm as summer inside this chamber. And that's where they spent their night. Now, they were okay, But other people, local hunters, other nomadic people have told stories of when they sleep in these rooms, they would become seriously ill the following day. And if you spent several nights in there, you would die. So there seems to be some radiation effect. We're not entirely sure. Um, And the problem is, is that to actually find these particular locations, it's almost impossible Mm. But we can find the general vicinity but these strange yeah, the tiger's uh, pretty big. It's it's huge, and it's all it's almost in some ways uh, impenetrable, and it's a very inhospitable location. And you know, there's the folklore also describes it as the place with cauldron, and that's because you've got all these metal, alleged metal locations that are around that are underground that have sunk down. But uh, what was found by the Russian researcher? is that there's even stories of these things sitting above the ground and being like large spheres. And what had happened was, is that they would sit above and all of a sudden they would start vibrating. And when they would vibrate, they would fire something out of them, out of the top. And what would come out would be what was described as being like a fireball, but It would arc off and leave a trail behind itself. And it was this blue ball of what appeared to be ball lightning, like I said, about 60 feet in diameter, which would take off into the sky and go and do whatever duties it was assigned for. Now, we don't know exactly what that is, but what it
0: seems is that it's acting as a defensive system for incoming meteorites. That's right. You're bringing back memories of last time we spoke about this. and, And it was the idea that it was some ancient technology that's basically running on autopilot.
1: That's exactly right. So uh, it's it's. I'll get to it in a moment because it's really, it's, what I find difficult about this is like the stories are fascinating. The, the, these are folkloric tales. These are urban legends, uh, but there are modern reports. As I said, like that story is from 1936. I mean, there was one case of this geologist who had gone there and he had come across a group of elderly natives and the natives started telling him about this golden metal hemisphere. And he starts questioning them about it. And what they describe is that there was this location that, you know, as I said, it was this hemisphere. It was almost uh, a goldy red kind of color. The walls were two centimeters thick, but they were extremely uh, sharp. And people were cutting themselves apparently in this. Then there was an archaeological uh, group that was dispatched there in 1979 to try and find these things. They found one, allegedly, but it was lost in the permafrost. So they saw it but once they got close to it, it kind of disappeared. Now, the, the legend... How do you lose something get, in the permafrost? Well, it's,
0: it's permanently... It's just frosted. It's like. <laughs>
1: said that apparently within this location, you could pass within metres of something and not see it. That's how you know, dense this particular location is. Um, there's reports from the 19, sorry 1850s that have explorers, you know, describing seeing these gigantic cauldrons that are made of copper, but it's not copper, it's something else. And in fact... There's one report that comes, uh, I don't exactly know what time frame it comes from, but there were a group of uh, travelers who had found one of these things. And when they found it, they said that, yeah, look, it's made of a strange metal and people think it's copper, but it's not copper. And they took a sharpened chisel to this. This is 1947. I'm sorry that this happened. Mm. And they took a, a chisel to it and they started smacking into the cauldron with a chisel. And they said the chisel, which was sharpened, just... Bounced off it. Yeah, that's right. Didn't cause any damage at all. Um, And they said there was this, it was covered. The copper was covered with this layer of some type of unknown material. And they said it wasn't oxidation. It was something, but it couldn't be chipped or scratched either. Now, what is strange about these cauldrons is that all the vegetation that's around them, it's anomalous. It's not consistent with the other vegetation in the area. There's three meter tall, like that's what, 12 feet tall grasses that are growing around it. Um, You know, this particular group said that while they spent the night in one of these things, no one fell seriously ill, like the legends say, but after a few months, one of the group, all of his hair fell out, and one of the main guys had said that when he'd slept on one particular side, he got these three indents or these three marks in his his skull that he's never been able to get rid of. So... One thing that they did though, and this is the 1946 group, is that they uh, tried to break off a small piece of the cauldron and they they couldn't do it. They couldn't get any part of it off. But inside, they said, was this small stone and it was a half of a perfect sphere. It was about six centimetres in diameter. It was black in colour, but it had no signs of being worked despite the fact that Mm. it was smooth, like it had actually been polished. And so he picks it up and he takes it home. And when he takes it home, he said that his parents... And their grandmother had decided to build a home and they needed to install glass windows and they needed something to cut the glass. There wasn't a glass cutter. So for some reason, he was just like, oh, I found this weird stone inside this radioactive cauldron that I slept in one night. Let's give that a try. (laughs) And he claims that he took this and yeah, he cut glass using this particular material. He gave it to his grandfather, but his grandfather was arrested in some communist purge or something and uh, unfortunately died and they lost the stone. So any physical evidence from these things is... Just it's elusive. It just keeps on disappearing uh, in these weird circumstances. Um, Sounds like the giants. Well, it may not be the giants. And this is the thing. This is where these stories about the giants come through. Um, some people have said that they've seen this large. There was a hunter that had come back from the region, and he said that he had seen this large iron trident sticking out of the ground. It was poking out of the ground, and it was like he thought it was like either a trident or a harpoon of some kind. And it ties in with the legends that come from this area of fire being expelled from these iron pillars that come up from the ground. Now, people have been taken there, and sadly, you know, when they've tried to again find these locations, they're now gone. They're somehow frosted over or something has occurred. And people that are telling these stories also die. So even the people that have claimed to be there in the past have now. You know, we've lost access to them to be able to find out exactly where these things are. There was one report that came from a group of, uh, they were I think they were hydroelectric workers that were building a project in that area. And they claimed that when they came across one of these metal spots, as they referred to it as, they um, started looking at it and went, oh, this is definitely different. This is unusual. They just built around it because they went, oh, well, we have to finish our project. So totally ignoring doing anything <laughs> with it. And they just built around it. Yeah, So, you know, what's happened, the legends that reference these things, if we go back into the the traditional folklore of this, the legends contain references to explosions, fiery whirlwinds, and spheres that rise up into the air. Uh, there's also, obviously, these metal constructions in the Valley of Death. But they say that these iron houses will fire from a spacious manhole up into the sky. Uh, people will hear sounds that come that are like a, a screeching kind of sound. The banging of steel is also reported. And like I said, these fiery whirlwinds, which are witnessed by these people. Now, where the, the legends have kind of changed is that it refers to this battle. These myths refer to this battle between these two giants. And we don't know exactly if they are giants, if they're, 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 they're just huge. So that's mm. why this idea of giants comes up, why they're fiery. But it's in the folklore, it describes these two bright objects that are fighting each other in the sky. And two of them are coming up, The only way that we can really interpret this is that, yeah, okay, it's folklore, but it fits in with the more modern reports of people saying, no, there's metal weird huts that have objects that come out of them and they fire electromagnetic charges out of them or some type of weird electromagnetic or, um, you know, ball lightning that is bringing down meteorites. So skipping forward, we have to go to the Tunguska explosion that happened in June of uh, 1908. Now the total power of the explosion of Tunguska I believe was almost like I think it was Hiroshima and Nagasaki combined and it would then it times it by 2000 like the amount of force that was connected with that But what's strange and this is what researchers not even paranormal researchers just people looking at the Tunguska explosion itself have noticed these odd observations that are connected to it For example there was this anomalous glow in the sky that was observed for 10 days after the Tunguska explosion took place. And people even saw these intense appearance of these silvery clouds, which keep it in mind because that's really important. There was massive radiation of light and heat. Okay, well, that's consistent, I suppose, with a meteorite crashing down. Um, There was a tremendous sound wave that traveled twice around the globe. Trees of an enormous area were flattened. We're talking, you know, thousands of square kilometers. And the soil in the Tunguska explosion in that zone there's anomalous properties that are not consistent with anywhere else in the world. It's like it's been magnetized, -magnetized, demagnetized, remagnetized. It's all very, very odd. So what Yuvorov has kind of jumped to is that this particular location, these weird uh, cauldrons, these metal cauldrons have been built by a highly advanced civilization. We don't know when or how far back, but it seems to be very ancient. And it's powered by somehow by a system that is connected to the earth. Now, I don't know if this is something like what I described with the piezoelectric generators from the, um, the pyramids or if it's, it's something else. But looking at this, this was an obvious technological nature that you can pull out of these ancient tales. So using these ancient tales, Yuvorov has come up with his theory. He said, look, what happened with the Tunguska explosion? It's really important not to look at the day, but what happened around it. So he says, first of all, the shamans, about two months before the, the explosion took place, the shamans started spreading rumors of the end of the world approaching. Mm. Two, in this particular area,
0: two months beforehand. Must be pretty easy to sp- spread rumors in northern Siberia. Well, must be. But
1: they, they claimed that they started contacting their spirit or having communication with their spirit guides and their spirit guides were telling them that there was something terrible that was approaching. So they have to leave. So you know what the nomadic tribes did? They moved their herds out of the region. There was even some meeting of the nomadic uh, leaders, the tribes of this area. They all moved themselves further away and they changed their courses to get away from this particular region. That's two months beforehand. Um, Did they explain how they knew? They just said that they were communicating with their spirit guides. So that's the start. Then wild animals began to leave the birds left their nesting grounds the swans left the lakes the fish apparently just disappeared uh you know in this immense expanse like tens of thousands of kilometers all of the fauna just disappeared and the shamans were like well looks like we're right we knew exactly what's going on so this is two months beforehand why what, what's happening so after studying some of the text yuvarov believes that the the local hunters that who were still alive to describe, you know, these events that took place, they saw this emergency, essentially evacuation of this area. Something was up. People knew that something was up, but what? No one was entirely sure. He says, then we jump forward to around where the event took place. And he says that on the morning of the 30th of June in 1908, he says a body from space entered Earth's atmosphere at immense speed. It was following this trajectory that went from southeast to northwest. The thing is though, is that locals, uh, people have reported that it's come from multiple different locations and there's some confusion as to the trajectory, but that might relate to these plasmaspheres because these plasmaspheres apparently- plasma now. Were already in the air. These terminators, like oh. he calls them plasmaspheres, but they're terminators. It's I thought like, you were talking about the cauldrons. This is something else. This is something else. But what's happened is they were fired from the cauldrons. They were ejected. From the cauldrons, so he says that roughly ten days before the explosion, these installations that are located in the Valley of Death actually shifted into a a new phase. He said it was the activation of the power plant, and they increased their energy levels. Now, th- the power plant we're not entirely sure what it is, but what he says is that when you look at this particular area, apparently there are magnetic anomalies that are found in this area that are consistent with some type of power source. But we don't know why. We don't don't understand where this is coming from. Now it's naturally, you know, being said. Oh, look, it's just a magnetic anomaly, but it's something that's consistent with the generation of power. So he also says that um, on this, as these explosions, or as it was, this machine or whatever this system is, was uh, powering up. Apparently, in Western Siberia, the darkness of night was replaced by this unusual illumination. They called it the White Nights, and what this was is that these shining bright clouds, these silvery shining bright clouds started appearing in the sky. He said that they started forming these lines of force, like what you see between the poles of magnets. This was happening in the sky. So possibly connected to the power generation Mm. and the activation of this system. So when this thing came down, there were several objects in the sky above the Siberian tiger that day. And they approached the explosion site from different sides so, this accounts for the discrepancies right, yeah. in the eyewitness reports, right? So, when you look at the reports that come in from people, what is odd is that in the immediate lo- area that's associated with the Tungusku explosion, apparently people that obviously weren't wiped out and killed because thousands of reindeer apparently didn't leave and they were killed and there were locals that were in this area that didn't leave. So, all the ones. fish and birds left, but the reindeer. Yeah, the went, reindeer was like, don't worry about it.
0: And then, yeah, they got eradicated. Um, if if the local tribes people left the area, who was left to witness the balls of energy leaving these cauldrons that were seen in the sky from hundreds of kilometers away? Okay,
1: so and this, how do we know they came from the cauldrons? Then? We don't. We the only way that we get this is that we're inferring it from the folklore. If you look into the folklore and people before apparently have seen them, and this is where um, this is what Yuvorov is is drawing his conclusions from. So I don't know if I necessarily agree, but. I mean, he does make a a pretty intriguing argument about these stories and how you could interpret them as being fired from these cauldrons. Is
0: the idea that the asteroid was much, much more... had more potential to destroy a larger area and somehow these defensive systems lessened the impact? That's exactly what happened. So allegedly 30 minutes before the fall of this meteorite,
1: um, there was a witness that was standing on a small lake and he made claims that as he was standing next to the lake... Uh, While he didn't see the actual fire, he said some crack appeared in the lake. And as this crack appeared in the lake, something pulled away and all the water fell through the crack, Mm. right? And as all the water fell through the crack, he said something um, started to appear up through the hole. Like something came up. And this might be one of those iron tripods or, you know, iron tridents, that it's getting ready to fire this... The automated yeah, defensive system exactly. activates. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> the Terminators. Cool. Yeah. So, um, you know, apparently people had said that these pillars had appeared, there were bangs that were heard, like cannon shots. Um, and ultimately, when you look at the research as to where this meteorite came in and what happened was, Yuvorov claims that one of these, these balls, these Terminators, had been fired from multiple locations. Now, Ben, if you have a look at the map here of the Tiger... You can see here that you've got multiple locations across the tiger that are spread out and you can see all of them converging on the particular loca- the trajectory of where the meteorite is coming in. Now, Yuvarov claims that this plasma ball had fired up and was heading towards the meteorite. It exploded over the top of the meteorite to destabilize it. Once it did that, the remaining ones came flying up to start firing on the remaining pieces as it broke away. Mm. And this apparently was witnessed by people. People had seen multiple items, bright blue colliding with something in the sky, seemingly cleaning it up and clearing up. Yes, it was still a massive explosion, but it would have been far worse had this system not been in place. And according to the folklore, according to these legends, something like this happens roughly every six to 700 years. Now... I guess it kind of makes sense in a way because you've got meteorites that are out there. Earth has been actually quite lucky to not get hit by so many things. I think even Jupiter, I think it's Jupiter that acts, or is it Venus? No, it must be Jupiter. That acts as like a a magnet to keep meteorites away from Earth. But occasionally these things are going to get past and they're going to start hitting Earth. So Yuvorov believes that this highly advanced civilization in the past created this system in this part of the world, Mm. in a remote part of the world, to bring these things down. But it's the other little stories that got me intrigued about this because it just doesn't end there. It's a cool idea. I love the concept. Oh, it's a really cool concept. I mean, it's, it's really fascinating. But there's a few more details here that so many people came... Like, it was 1908, and it was before there were planes and, and helicopters in the air. Um, but people... And this is what is being said by, you know, people that are still are still alive, you know, when Yuvrov um, was doing his research. Um, but they were saying, look, back in 1908, I was outside working in my farm... When something happened like this rumbling appeared behind me, it was unlike anything I'd ever heard before. And they turned around and they said in the, no- in the sky, it was a day sky, I'm sorry. They said there was this fiery sphere in this cloudless sky that was just making this rumble that was moving around like it was looking for something, hmm. like it was waiting. And what <laughs> it did, right? The sentinel. What it did is it came over the top of this guy's farm. And when it came over his farm, it burnt the top of the trees as it went, it didn't touch them but it was radiating enough heat. Now, meanwhile, he's like, ah, ah, ah. He starts pulling off his shirt because his shirt feels like it's on fire as this thing comes across. So it's radiating heat, possibly radiation as well. He said, all of a sudden, this thing, like it had intelligence to it, kind of swung around like it was looking, pointed itself towards a particular direction and went, and took off this is where it was converging. It was like they were moving around. This was reported by so many people that had seen these things. They said they had seen them hovering around like they were waiting for something, mm. then pointing to the direction where they have to travel and then converging on the location of the meteorite. Now, the meteorite, apparently these Terminator spheres had melted some of them. Like the amount of force that came out of it, uh, not some of it, it had melted the, the parts of the meteorite that had come down, causing it to come down in a field. And one guy had reported that the, he saw it come down and caused an explosion with blue flames that came from it. So this isn't just simply a meteorite. There's far more to it than we realize. And these legends become even more crazy when there's a couple of just short stories that came out of this many years later. So what uh, Uvarov writes is that, you know, people had seen the behavior of the explosion, and they said it was a vacuum implosion. So just take a listen to what happened. So apparently... If you look at the crater of this particular explosion, yes, it had knocked down all these trees. And and you can see it. When you look at the images of the Tunguska explosion, you see it all knocked down in one particular location. But at the same time, a whole heap of stuff was sucked and actually pulled towards the explosion in some kind of weird vacuum in compensatory explosive
0: forces. Isn't that normal, though, from some kind of impact? You would have that opposite effect after the initial impact it
1: is but normally it's man made it's not necessarily something that happens in nature this kind of effect and this was before it had impacted this is before it impacted the ground it was something that happened in the sky now where this has happened only recently is odd it happened in 1991 in sassovo so Sasavo is strange in that This explosion took place in this Russian town. It's about 350 kilometers to the southeast of Moscow. Now, after this explosion, there was a crater with a diameter of about 30 meters wide and three meters deep. Now, the amount of force that would be caused to create this, it would have to be something really impressive, like something really amazing. No one knows what caused it, but some people have claimed to have seen bright blue-white lights flying around in the sky before this event took place. Hmm. So is it that this system was still in effect? Did it somehow kick in? Why is this happening in 1901, 90 years later, or 89, 88 years later, after the initial Tunguska explosion?
0: I wonder what the electrical universe guys would have to say about this, because you know they talk about all, all this activity having some kind of electrical energy basis to it. So yes. you could have a scenario where a- an asteroid strikes or, you know, something something happens from an extraterrestrial object that creates this kind of anomalous light activity?
1: Well, it's not just the anomalous light activity. It, there's, there's something else. The anomalous light activity might be connected to time-space distortions. So this is kind of nuts, right? But Yuvorov says that these gigantic electromagnetic discharges, which is caused at the moment of the Terminator impacting the uh, meteorite causes a magnetization of the soils and it creates this extremely strong effect on the soil, potentially affecting the space time structure at the blast site, what? leading to a change in the flow of physical time at this location. Right? So there's this story of the son of a Tunguska witness. And he claims that at the moment of the blast, uh, he was hit by some type of wave uh, he said that other people were caught up in the wave and people and animal were instantaneously shifted to remote locations. In other words, they were teleported, not vaporized, they were teleported as a result of this explosion taking place.
0: Was was he a teenager at the event and when he was teleported, he had a great bushy beard and he was in his 30s?
1: <laughs> no, 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 no. There was no time distortion like that. But what's odd, right? is that then when you pull together some of the other stories, Yuvorov references this story of where apparently there were a heap of tents by the nomads that were still quite a distance from the explosive site, but they were hit by this wave as well. It smashed the tents and carried people into it. They found themselves miles away in a marsh and they were okay. So is it that either, and maybe the force was that powerful that threw them that far, but I don't think so. It seems like when you look at that other story, that there was something going on with the electromagnetic effects
0: of this particular blast wave. Did they die from massive
1: internal injuries? <laughs> no, well, that's not that's not mentioned, right? But, I mean, it seems like there was a lot of high-frequency energy. So um, I'm really fascinated with this. I'm going to keep on digging into this and finding out more details about it because there's, there's more to it with these cauldrons and the electromagnetic effects that they have. And, you know, unfortunately, beyond really the 1930s, 1940s reports, you don't find any reports of people travelling into the taiga
0: yeah. and finding these things. Well, I was going to say, good luck. Yeah, I, I mean, well, I, first of all, I don't speak Russian. I think these cauldrons, we would have evidence for them by now. Well, this is the other... If, if they're that well spotted in this time yeah. period and, and, and now suddenly, like, no one's seen them. Yeah. Really? Well, Yvorov also makes this one argument as well about what happened with these
1: things. Well, they retracted into the ground. Well, they do. this, And they do. And so the legends, and I, I missed mm. that. So the legends describe that they they call them the laughing. Oh no, is it the screaming holes, or the laughing, or something like that? There's this term that's used, and it's because um, they when they come up out of the ground, like that crack in the lake, mm. pulling all the water away, they come up out of the ground, do what they have to do, and then disappear back down into the ground. So this could be why you know we haven't found them. And it, it, as I said, it's a very remote you know, very difficult region, almost inhospitable region to get into. Um, but there's one other thing that comes up. Witnesses reported that they heard all of these multiple percussive bangs after the the Terminator spheres had hit the meteorite. He says, this supports the idea that these uh, spheres that were moving about were actually scanning the meteorite for dangerous microorganisms and were what? cleaning it up the remnants <laughs> as it hit the Earth. Wow. So, like, okay, the spheres are actually you know, pretty cool. I mean, if they are real, and I like that theory as well, like if there actually was, and we talk about it so, so much recently, about these races that may have been highly technologically advanced and are now gone and were wiped out by something. But if they're building all these sites around the world, maybe there's a possibility that they could have built something like this to help preserve humanity from us being hit. Because like one meteorite, one big enough meteorite, and we all dead. Like, it's as simple as that. Like, we're all gone. We need some milk.
0: <laughs> if that was to happen. You're absolutely right.
1: <laughs> I haven't got that sound bite together, but I will get that one together. Yes.
0: Um, they must have a good warranty on these things because they've lasted a while. Well, they might. They'd be ancient. But the description of them not being able to be
1: damaged in any way, even with a sharp chisel, would suggest that. That it must be developed from some type
0: of advanced manufacturing method that we don't even understand. This new book out came oh, this new book out. This new book came out today from Alan Steinfeld. And I remembered his name from somewhere and I realized he was the MC at the Contact in the Desert oh, okay. events that I went to yep. in, in California. And he was a really kind of weird, weird guy. He gave off these weird vibes. He'd always He'd always introduce the person that was about to talk on stage, but then he would make it about himself, like he would talk, tell some kind of personal story. <laughs> it's like, just get off the stage, get let the next person talk. But he released this book today, and it's a compilation of essays from people like um, Linda Moulton Howe, mm-hmm. Grant Cameron. Um, there's an old one from John Mack in there. Oh, right. Uh, S- and Whitley Streber's written a new one and they're just cr- crazy it's like because he's a little he's a little bit wild they feel like they I can, like the crazy though they can write anything that's ins- and Linda Howe has just the most insane story why do you tell me because <laughs> I just discovered it this afternoon oh but she she talks about exactly what you're describing like Ancient, but she goes straight into aliens. Like well, everything's aliens. Yeah, so right. there's this ancient technology. It was placed there by aliens 245,000 years ago. She starts describing how the inside of the Earth is like a multi-storied apartment, and like the reptilians have the ground floor, and then the Pleiadians along like the third floor, and then there's the Greys on another level. Who and- gets the penthouse? Penthouses, humans, like oh, humans right. are just the top, on the surface. Of course, yeah. And she just goes through this insane story and she, t- she tells this story of meeting up with two people she claims were part of, I think one was in the Defense Intelligence Agency and one was in the CIA. And she meets with them at this clandestine uh, location. They kind of suss her out. And then she tells this story of how they walk her down to the beach and they sit- Put her in a net. They sit either side of her on this um, bench And they start talking about all these, exactly what you're describing, this ancient technology that protects the earth and how all the alien races were invested in in human beings. And it's just, you just reminded me of it when you were describing this ancient defense system. We're going to have to do it then. I'll I'll send it to you. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll do it. Crazy enough for you to do, actually. Perfect. All right, I'll do it. Yeah, well, I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to check it out. But good to hear about the Tunguska uh, automated terminated defence system. Look, we're One safe, of my favourite stories. I love that yeah, story. Apparently we're safe, so we've got nothing to worry about. Is it still operating?
1: Well, apparently so. I haven't heard anything, so we'll just go with yes. Okay.
0: That's alright for the show. Thanks for listening. We'll keep a lookout for uh, Paul Wallace's new book. I mean, he's probably working on it now, considering the whole build-up was him getting his hypnotic regression. He's sitting in the office of of um, what was her name? Barbara's, The name? Barbara, Barbara Lamb. Barbara Lamb's uh, studio to get his hypnotic regression. I wonder if the reason why he didn't include it in the book is because nothing actually happened. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was thinking about that. Like if he's- Then he why probably, would you write a whole other book about that's it? That's the thing, like the whole book was set up. That, and that's why I kept reading it today. It was set up for this big reveal at the end. And then it just wasn't there. So I've got a feeling that he did the regression. He already had the book deal. He'd already written half the manuscript. And he was like, and now I'm going to end on this. And she put him under and nothing happened. Surely you wouldn't do that. You'd just put it in. You wouldn't leave it. Ooh, we'll have to wait and see. That's a wrap for this Plus Show. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being a member. We'll catch you on Friday you're next MU. See you then.